Chapter 13, Part 4 of More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Hand. More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice by George Prentice. Chapter 13, Part 4 incidents of the year eighteen seventy four prayer starts a bible reading in dorset begins to take lessons in painting a letter from her teacher publication of urbane and his friends design of the work her views of the christian life the mystics the indwelling christ an allegory during the winter and early spring of 1874, Mrs. Prentice found much delight in attending a weekly Bible reading held by Miss Susan Warner. She was deeply impressed with the advantages of such a mode of studying the Word of God, and in the course of the summer was led to start a similar exercise in Dorset. Her letters will show how much satisfaction it gave her during all the rest of her life. Another incident that left its mark upon this year was the sudden and dangerous illness of her husband. His life was barely saved by an immediate surgical operation. He convalesced very slowly, and it was many months before she recovered from the shock. To a Christian friend, January 25th, 1874. I do not perfectly understand what you say about prayer, but it reminds me of Mrs. Blank's expressing surprise at my praying. She said she did not because Christ was all round her. But it is no less a fact that Christ himself spent hours in prayer, using language when he did so. That does not prove, however, that he did not hold silent, mystical communication with the Father. It seems to me that communion is one thing and intercessory prayer another. My own prayers are chiefly of the latter class. The sweet sense of communion of which I have had so much has been greatly wanting. I dare not ask for it. I must pray as the Spirit gives me utterance. No doubt your experience is beyond mine. I can conceive of a silence that unites, not separates, as existing between Christ and the soul. As to her, of whom we sadly spoke, I am so absolutely lost in confusion of thought that I feel as if chart and compass had gone overboard. I believe there can be falls from the highest state of grace, and that sometimes a fall is the best thing that can happen to one. But it is an appalling thought. How wary all this should make you and me. Though I have felt the greatest respect for Miss Blank, I have often wondered why I did not love her more. Well, we have a new reason for fleeing to Christ in this perplexity and disappointment. I had let her be, in many things, my oracle, and perhaps no human being ought to be that. Shall we ever learn to put no confidence in the flesh? My husband thinks Miss Blank insane. To a young friend, January 27, 1874. The comfort I have had as the fruit of close acquaintance with the sick room. I see more and more how wise God was, as well as how good, in hiding me away during all the years that might have been very tempting, had I had my freedom. My publishing this book was a sort of miracle. I never meant to do it, but my will was taken away and it was done in one short month. I should not expect a girl as young as yourself to respond to much of it, but I am glad you found anything to which you could. When I received my own great blessing 35 years ago, I was younger than you are now, and hadn't half the lights you have. 
nor did I know exactly what to aim at, but blundered and suffered not a little. It seems to me that it is eminently fitting that we should go to the throne of grace together, and expect, in so doing, a different kind of blessing from that sought alone in the closet. I never feel any embarrassment in praying with those older and better than myself. The better they are, the less disposed they will be to look down upon me. The truth is, we are all alike in being poor and needy, and it is a good thing to get together and confess this to our Father in each other's hearing. I can unite cordially with anyone, man, woman, or child, who really prays. A very illiterate person could win my heart if I knew he truly loved the Lord Jesus, no matter how clumsily he expressed that love, and his prayers would edify me. Perhaps you cannot look at this matter exactly as I do. I know I suffered for years whenever I prayed with others, old or young, but I persevered in what I believed to be a duty, until, not so very long ago, the duty became a pleasure, all fear of man being taken away. I never think anything about what sort of prayer I make. In fact, I make no prayer. We have to speak as the Spirit gives us utterance. To Misconduct, Cowanfells, August sixteenth, 1874 Yesterday, Miss H. came down and asked me if I would start a Bible reading at her house. I told her I would with pleasure. This morning, I decided to open with the Sermon on the Mount and have been studying the first promise. Do take your Bible and study that verse by reading the references. I am delighted that our dear Lord has at last pointed out my mission to this village. I have long prayed that he would open a way of access to hearts here. Pray next Wednesday afternoon that I may be a witness for him. There are a number of families boarding in town who will join the reading. Miss H. wanted to give notice from the pulpit, but I could not consent to that. You say your mother asks about my book. It is a queer one, and I am not satisfied with it. But my husband is, and thinks it will do good. God grant it may. I entitle it Paths of Peace, or Christian Friends in Council. After the most earnest prayer for light, I cannot preach sinless perfection. I think God has provided a way to perfection and that that is looking unto Jesus. If the higher life means utter sinlessness, then I shall have to own that I have never had any experience of it. Mr. P. has given me a world of anxiety. He will go round everywhere, even on jolting straw rides. His wound is nearly healed, however. He is looking the picture of health, but feels uncomfortable and sleeps restlessly. I went up to the tavern lately as a great piece of self-denial to call on a lady boarding there, and found I had thus stumbled on to fine gold, the gold you and I love. She is the wife of the Reverend Mr. R. of Flushing. Soon after returning to town, she began to take lessons in oil painting. Her teacher was Mrs. Julia H. Beers, now Mrs. Kempson, a lady gifted with much of the artistic power belonging to her distinguished brothers, William and James M. Hart. In this new pursuit, Mrs. Prentice passed many very busy and happy hours. The following letter to her husband gives Mrs. Kempson's recollections of them. Fir Tree Cottage, Medicine, January 27, 1880 My dear Dr. Prentice, when the news came of Mrs. Prentice's death, I felt that I had lost a friend whose place could not be filled. I never had a pupil in whom I was so much interested, or one that I loved so dearly. She has told me many times that the days spent with me were red-letter days in her life. They certainly were in my own. I shall never forget her first visit to my studio on the corner of 5th Avenue and 26th Street. We had not met before, and I felt somewhat awed in the presence of an authoress. 
but in a few minutes we were fast friends. Taking one of my portfolios in her arms, she asked, may I sit down on the floor and take this in my lap? Of course, I assented. She poured over the contents with the delight of a child. Then turning to me, she said, this is what I have had a craving for all my life. There has always been a want unsupplied. I knew not what it was, but now I know. It was a reaching out for the beautiful. Look at my white hair and tell me if it would be possible for me to learn. I replied, yes, if you desire to do so. Will you take me for a pupil? She asked. I do not know which end of the brush to use. No matter, I said, I can teach you. She became my pupil, and you know the result, but you cannot know, as I do, the delight she took in her studies. My ordinary pupils were limited to two hours, but I said to her, come at ten and stay as long as you please. Punctual to the moment she came, seated herself at her easel, and rarely left it while the light lasted. I never saw such enthusiasm or such appreciation. At first her progress was slow, but as she gained knowledge of the materials, it became very rapid. In my opinion, she had remarkable talent and, if spared, might even have made herself a name as an artist. I have had hundreds of pupils, but not one of them ever made such progress. What a delight it was to teach her. All her quaint sayings and her beautifully expressed thoughts I treasured up as precious things. She always brought brightness to the studio with her. I could see her so plainly this moment as she came in one morning. Well, she said, I thought when I commenced painting, if ever I painted a daisy that did not need to be labeled, I should be proud, and I have done it. I wish, dear Dr. Prentice, I could recall the thousand and one pleasant things that every now and then have occurred to me while I was thinking of her. I tried to write you when I heard of your great loss, but my heart failed me. I could not, nor can I, imagine you living without her. In her last letter to me, she says, speaking of my daughter's marriage, I hope thirty years hence the twain will be as much in love with each other as two old codgers of my acquaintance who go on talking heavenly nonsense to each other after the most approved fashion. How little I then dreamed that we should never meet again. I should much like to see you all. I have not forgotten that pleasant summer at Dorset in 1875, nor the great pan of blackberries you picked for me with your own hands. With kindest regards, very sincerely, Julia H. Kempson. To Mrs. Humphrey, New York, December 1874. After learning how to manage a Bible reading by attending Miss Warner's once a week for four or five months, I got my tongue so loose that I have held one by request at Dorset. The interest in it did not flag all summer, and ladies, young and old, came from all directions, not only to the readings, but with tears to open their hearts to me. Some hitherto worldly ones were among the number. I have also helped to start one at Elizabeth, another at Orange, another at Flushing. My husband says, if one were held in every church in the land, the country would be revolutionized. It is just such work as you would delight in. Do forgive the blots. I am tearing away on this letter so that I forget myself and dip up too much ink. I've been urged to hold three readings a week in different parts of the city, but that is not possible. You can't imagine how thankful I am that I have at last found a sphere of usefulness in Dorset. We had a great shock last spring when Mr. Prentice was stricken down. I do not dare to think how hard it would have been to become husbandless and homeless at one blow. But I well know that no earthly circumstances need really destroy our happiness in that which is, after all, our life. Even if it is only for the few years before our boys leave home, never to return permanently to it, I shall be thankful to have it left as it is, if that is best. 
If I had not known what my husband's trouble was and summoned aid in the twinkling of an eye, Dr. Buck says he would have died. He would certainly have died if he had been at Dorset. He has never recovered his strength, but is able to give his lectures. Although I did very little nursing, I got a good deal run down, especially from losing sleep, and have had to go to bed at half past eight or nine all summer, and thus far in the winter. I am taking lessons this winter in oil painting with A. She has the advantage of me in having had lessons in drawing, while I have had none. My teacher says she never had a beginner do better than I, so I think beginners very awkward mortals, who get paint all over their clothes, hands, and faces, and who, if they get a pretty picture, know in the secrecy of their guilty consciences it was done by a compassionate artist who would fain persuade one into the fancy that the work was one's own. What you say about my having done you good surprises me. Whatever treasure God has in me is hidden in an earthen vessel and unseen by my own eyes. I feel every day how much there is to learn, how much to unlearn, and that no genuine experience is to be despised. Some people roundly berate Christians for want of faith in God's word when it is want of faith in their own private interpretation of his word. I think that when the very best and wisest of mankind get to heaven, they'll get a standard of holiness that might make them blush. Only, it is not likely they will blush. In the latter part of this year, Urbane and his friends appeared. Urbane is an aged pastor, and his friends are members of his flock, whom he had invited to meet him from week to week for Christian counsel and fellowship. Some of their names, Antiochus, Hermes, Junia, Claudia, Apelles, and the like, sound rather strange, but together with those more familiar, they are all borrowed from the New Testament. Urbane and his friends is the only book of didactic sort written by Mrs. Prentice. It is not, however, wholly didactic, but contains also touches of narrative and character that add to its interest. Among the topics discussed are the Bible, temptation, faith, prayer, the mystics, the higher Christian life, service, pain and sorrow, peace and joy, and the indwelling Christ. She was dissatisfied with the work and required some persuasion before she would consent to its being published. But its spiritual tone, its tenderness, its sweet reasonableness, and the bright little pictures of Christian truth and life, which enliven its pages, have led some to prize it more than any other of her writings. And here it may not be out of place to insert the following letter of her husband, written several months after her death. It gives her matured views on certain points relating to the Christian life, about which there has been no little difference of opinion. New York, April 16, 1879. My dear friend, many thanks for your kind words about Urbane and his friends. So far, at least, as the aim and spirit of the book are concerned, no praise could exceed its merits. It was written with a single desire to honor Christ by aiding and cheering some of his disciples on their way heavenward. At that time, as you know, there was a good deal of discussion about the higher Christian life and holiness through faith. She herself had felt some of the difficulties connected with the subject and was anxious to reach out a helping hand to others similarly perplexed. I do not think her mind was specially adapted to the didactic style, nor was it much to her taste. When writing in that style, her pen did not seem to be entirely at ease or to move quite at its own sweet will. Careful statement and nice theological distinctions were not her forte. And yet her mental grasp of Christian doctrine in its vital substance was very firm, and her power of observing, as well as depicting, the most delicate and varying phenomena of the spiritual life was like an instinct. 
a purer or more wholehearted love of the truth as it is in jesus i never witnessed in any human being at the same time she was very modest and distrustful of her own judgment when opposed to that of others whom she regarded as experienced christians i wish you could enjoy a tithe of the happiness that was mine during the winter and spring of eighteen seventy three and four as evening after evening she talked over with me the various points discussed in her book and then read to me what she had written those were golden hours indeed hours in which was fulfilled the saying that is written and it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned jesus himself drew near as i look back to the sabbath evenings passed with her in such converse they seem to me radiant still with the glory of the risen christ nor am i able to imagine what else than his presence could have rendered them at the time so soothing and blissful you refer to her fondness for the mystics she thought that christian piety owes a large debt of gratitude to such writers as thomas akempis madame guillon fenelon leighton tierstegen and others like them in earlier and later times to whom the secret of the lord seemed in a peculiar manner to have been revealed and who with seraphic zeal trod as well as taught the paths of peace and holiness while she was writing the chapter on the mystics i showed her coleridge's tributes to them in his biographia literaria which greatly pleased her it is her own experience that she puts into the mouth of urbane where he says after quoting coleridge's tribute i have no recollection of ever reading this passage till to-day but had toiled out its truth for myself and now set my hand and seal it it is for her too as well as for himself that urbane speaks where in answer to hermes question who are the mystics he says they are the men and women known to every age of the church who usually make their way through the world completely misunderstood by their fellow men their very virtues sometimes appear to be vices they are often the scorn and contempt of their time and are even persecuted and thrown into prison by those who think they thus do our lord service but now and then one arises who sees or thinks he sees some clue to their lives and their speech though not of them he feels a mysterious kinship to them that makes him shrink with pain when he hears them spoken of unjustly now i happen to be such a man i have not built up any pet theory that i want to sustain i am not in any way bound to fight for any school but i should be most ungrateful to god and man if i did not acknowledge that i owe much of the sum and substance of the best part of my life to mystical writers i and mystical thinkers whom i know in the flesh i use christ as a magnet and say to all who cleave to him even when i cannot perfectly agree with them on every point of doctrine you love christ therefore i love you closely allied to her fondness for the mystics was her delight in the doctrine of the indwelling christ for more than thirty years it was a favorite subject of our sunday and weekday talk the closing chapters of the gospel of john the epistle to the ephesians and other parts of the new testament in which this most precious truth is enshrined were especially dear to her so too and for the same reason was levator's hymn beginning o jesus christus vox in mir a hymn with which we became acquainted soon after our marriage and which i do not doubt she repeated to herself many thousands of times the surest way as she thought of rising above the bondage of frames and entering into the glorious liberty of the sons of god is to become fully conscious of our actual union to christ and of what is involved in this thrice sacred union it is not enough that we trust in him as our saviour and the lord of our righteousness 
he must also dwell in our hearts by faith as our spiritual life the union is indeed mystical and indescribable but none the less real or less joy-inspiring for all that we want no metaphor and no mere abstraction in our souls we want christ himself we want to be able to say in sublime contradiction i live yet not i but christ liveth in me and this too is the way of sanctification as well as of rest and conscience for just in proportion as christ lives in the soul self goes out and with it sin just in proportion as self goes out christ comes in and with him righteousness peace and joy in the holy ghost but as, in her view, the doctrine of an indwelling Christ did not supplant the doctrine of an atoning and interceding Christ, so neither did it supplant that of Christ as our example, or annul the great law of self-sacrifice, by which, following in his steps, we also are to be made perfect through suffering. Such is a brief outline of her teaching on this subject in Urbane and his friends, and from its publication until her death, her theory of the way of holiness reduced itself more and more to these two simple points christ in the flesh showing and teaching us how to live and christ in the spirit living in us and this presence of christ in the soul she regarded i repeat as an actual as well as actuating presence mediated indeed like his sacrifice upon the cross by the holy ghost but as through the eternal spirit he offered himself without spot unto god even so in and through the same eternal spirit he himself comes and takes up his abode in the hearts of his faithful disciples his indwelling is not a mere metaphor not a bare moral relation but the most blessed reality a veritable union of life and love she thought that much of the meaning and comfort of the doctrine was sometimes lost by not keeping this point in mind in a letter written not long before her death she reiterated very strongly her conviction on this subject appealing to our lord's teaching in the seventeenth chapter of john and this brings me to what you say about the chapter entitled the mystics of today or the higher christian life and to your inquiry as to her later views on the question you are quite right in supposing that while writing this chapter she had a good deal of sympathy with some of the advocates of the higher life doctrine she heartily agreed with them in believing that it is the privilege of christ's disciples to rise to a much higher state of holy love assurance and rest of soul than the most of them seem ever to reach in this world and further that such a spiritual uplifting may come and sometimes does come in the way of a sudden and extraordinary experience but it is never without a history she gives a beautiful picture of such an experience in the case of stephanus who was as gay as any boy and then adds now the descent of the blessing was sudden and lifted him at once into a new world but the preparation for it had been going on ever since he learned to pray but while agreeing with the advocates of the higher life doctrine in some points she was far from agreeing with them in all and her disagreement increased and grew more decided in her later years the subject is often alluded to in her letters to christian friends and should these letters ever be published they will answer your inquiry much better than i can do the points in the higher life and holiness through faith views which she most strongly dissented from related to the question of perfection the christian life this was her view is subject to the great law of growth it is a process an education and not a mere volition or series of volitions its progress may be rapid but ideally considered each new stage is conditioned by the one that went before first the blade then the ear after that the full corn in the ear 
It embraces the whole spirit and soul and body, and its perfect development, therefore, is a very comprehensive thing, touching the length and breadth, the depth and height of our entire being. It is also, in its very nature, conflict as well as growth. The forces of evil must be vanquished, and these forces, whether acting through body, soul, or spirit, are very subtle, treacherous, and often occult, as well as very potent. The best man on earth, if left to himself, would fall a prey to them. No fact of religious experience is more striking than this, that the higher men rise in real goodness. The nearer they come to God, the more keen-eyed and distressed they are to detect evil in themselves. Their sense of sin seems to be in a sort of inverse ratio to their freedom from its power. And we meet with a similar fact in the natural life. The finer and more exalted the sentiment of purity and honor, the more sensitive will one be to the slightest approach to what is impure or dishonorable in one's own character and conduct. Such is substantially her ground of descent from the higher life theory. Her own sense of sin was so profound and vivid that she shuddered at the thought of claiming perfection for herself, and it seemed to her a very sad delusion for anybody else to claim it. True holiness is never self-conscious. It does not look at itself in the glass, and if it did, it would see only Christ, not itself, reflected there. This was her way of looking at the subject, and she came to regard all theories, still more all professions, of entire sanctification as fallacious and full of peril. Not a help, but a serious hindrance to real Christian holiness. For several years she not only read, but carefully studied the most noted writers who advocated the higher life and holiness through faith doctrines, and her testimony was, they had done her harm. I find myself spiritually injured by them, she wrote to a friend less than two years before her death. How do you explain the fact, she added, that truly good people are left to produce such an effect? Is it not to shut us up to Christ? What a relief it will be to get beyond our own weaknesses and those of others. I long for that day. I've just alluded to her deep, vivid consciousness of sin. It would have been an intolerable burden had not her feeling of God's infinite grace and love in Christ been still more vivid and profound. The little allegory in the ninth chapter of Urbane and His Friend expresses very happily this feeling. There are several other points in her theory of the Christian life to which she attached much importance. One is the close connection between suffering in some form and holiness, or growth, in grace. The cross, the way to the crown, this thought runs like a golden thread through all the records of her religious history. She expressed it while a little girl as she sat one day with a young friend on a tombstone in the old burying ground at Portland. It occurs again and again in her early letters. In one written in 1840, she says, I thought to myself that if God continued his faithfulness towards me, I shall have afflictions such as I now know nothing more of than the name. In another written four years later, in the midst of the Swedish joy, I know there are some of the greatest lessons of life yet to be learned. I believe I must suffer as long as I have an earthly existence. And in after years, when it formed so large an element in her own experience, she came to regard suffering, when sanctified by the word of God and by prayer, as the king's highway to Christian perfection. This point is often referred to and illustrated in her various writings, more especially in Stepping Heavenward and Golden Hours. Possibly she carried her theory a little too far, Perhaps it does not appear to be always verified in actual Christian experience, but certainly no one can deny that it is in harmony with the general teaching of inspired scripture and with the spirit of Catholic piety in all ages. 
Another point, which also found illustration in her books, is the vital connection between the habit of devout communion with God and Christ and all the daily virtues and charities of religion. Another still is the close affinity between depth and piety and the highest, sweetest enjoyment of earthly good. Her own Christian life was, to me, a study from the beginning. It had heights and depths of its own, which awed me and which I could not fully penetrate. Jonathan Edwards' exquisite description of Sarah Pierpoint at the age of 13, Mrs. Edwards' own account of her religious exercises after her marriage, and Goethe's Confessions of a Beautiful Soul, always reminded me of some of its characteristic features. If my pastoral ministrations gave any aid and comfort to other souls, I can truly say it was all largely due to her. And as for myself, my debt of gratitude to her as a spiritual helper and friend in Christ was, is, and ever will be unspeakable. The instant I began to know her, I began to feel the cheering influence and uplifting power of her faith. For more than a third of a century, it was the most constant and by far the strongest human force that wrought in my religious life. Nor was it a human force alone, for surely a faith like hers is in real contact with Christ himself and is an inspiration of his spirit. She longed so to live and move and have her being in love to Christ that nobody could come near her without being straightway reminded of him. She seemed to be always saying to herself, in the words of an old Irish hymn, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ at my right, Christ at my left, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks to me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Such was her constant prayer, and it was answered in the experience of many souls whose faith was kindled into a brighter flame by the intense ardor of hers. So long and so closely, in my own mind, was she associated with Christ, that the thought of her still reminds me of him as naturally as does reading about him in the New Testament. The allegory referred to above is here given. A benevolent man found a half-starred, homeless, blind beggar boy in the streets of a great city. He took him, just as he was, to his own house, adopted him as his own son, and began to educate him. But the boy learned very slowly, and his face was often sad. His father asked him why he did not fix his mind more upon his lessons, and why he was uncheerful and happy like the other children. The boy replied that his mind was constantly occupied with the fear that he had not been really adopted as a son, and might at any moment learn his mistake. Father, but can you not believe me when I assure you that you are my own dear son? Boy, I cannot, for I can see no reason why you should adopt me. I was a poor, bad boy. You did not need any more children, for you had a house full of them, and I never can do anything for you. Father, you can love me and be happy, and as you grow older and stronger, you can work for me. Boy, I am afraid I do not love you, and that is what troubles me. Father, would you not be very sorry to have me deny that you are my son and turn you out of the house? Boy. Oh, yes, but perhaps that is because you take good care of me, not because I love you. Father, suppose then I should provide someone else to take care of you and then should leave you. Boy, that would be dreadful. Father, why? You would be taken good care of and have every want supplied. Boy, but I should have no father. I should lose the best thing I have. I should be lonely. Father, you see you love me a little at all events. Now, do you think I love you? Boy, I don't see how you can. I am such a bad boy, and try your patience, so. And I am not half as thankful to you for your goodness as I ought to be. 
Sometimes, for a minute, I think to myself, he is my father, and he really loves me. Then I do something wrong, and I think nobody would want such a boy. Nobody can love such a boy. Father, my son, I tell you that I do love you, but you cannot believe it because you do not know me, and you do not know me because you have not seen me, because you are blind. I must have you cured of this blindness. So the blind boy had the scales removed from his eyes and began to see. He became so interested in using his eyesight that for a time he partially lost his old habit of despondency. But one day, when it began to creep back, he saw his father's face light up with love as one after another of his children came to him for a blessing, and said to himself, They are his own children, and it is not strange that he loves them, and does so much to make them happy. But I am nothing but a beggar boy. He can't love me. I would give anything if he could. Then the father asked why his face was sad, and the boy told him, Father, come into this picture gallery and tell me what you see. Boy, I see a portrait of a poor, ragged, dirty boy. And here is another, and another. Why, the gallery is full of them. Father, do you see anything amiable and lovable in any of them? Boy, oh, no. Father, do you think I love your brothers? Boy, I know you do. Father, well, here they are, just as I took the poor fellows out of the streets. Boy, out of the streets, as you did me? They are all your adopted sons? Father, every one of them. Boy, I don't understand it. What made you do it? Father, I loved them so that I could not help it. Boy, I never heard of such a thing. You loved those miserable beggar boys? Then you must be made of love. Father, I am, and that is the reason I am so grieved when some such boys refuse to let me become their father. Boy, refuse? Oh, how can they? Refuse to become your own dear sons? Refuse to have such a dear, kind, patient father? Refuse love? Father, my poor blind boy, don't you now begin to see that I do not wait for these adopted sons of mine to wash and clothe themselves, to become good and obedient and affectionate, but loved them because they were such destitute, wicked, lost boys? I did not go out into the streets to look for well-dressed, well-cared-for, faultless children who would adorn my house and shine in it like jewels. I sought for outcasts. I loved them as outcasts. I knew they would be ungrateful and disobedient and never loved me half as much as I did them. But that made me all the more sorry for them. See what pains I am taking with them and how beautifully some of them are learning their lessons. And now, tell me, my son, in seeing this picture gallery, do you not begin to see me? Could anything less than love take in such a company of poor beggars? Boy, Yes, my father, I do begin to see it. I do believe that I know you better now than I ever did before. I believe you love even me, and now I know that I love you. Father, now then, dear son, let that vexing question drop forever, and begin to act as my son and heir should. You have a great deal to learn, but I will myself be your teacher, and your mind is now free to attend to my instructions. Do you find anything to love and admire in your brothers? Boy. Indeed, I do. You shall be taught the lessons that have made them what they are. Meanwhile, I want to see you look cheerful and happy, remembering that you are in your father's heart. Boy, dear father, I will, but oh, help me to be a better son. Father, dear boy, I will.
End of chapter 13, part 4.